Drama on One. Sundays at 8pm. rta.ie forward slash drama on one. Drama on one. Now on RTE Radio 1, in tribute to the late Peter O'Toole, we're broadcasting a public interview with the Lawrence of Arabia star in conversation with John Kelly. This programme was recorded at the Town Hall Theatre Galway on the 12th of July 2008. This year's Galway Film Fla, in association with the Irish Film and Television Academy, has chosen to honour a true legend of stage and screen, and for us, of course, something of a national treasure. These, of course, are cliches, what my old English teacher used to say, expressions uh, no longer uh, important and no longer significant and which have lost their meaning. However, in this case, it's all true. He is a legend of stage and screen. He is a national treasure. And here's another couple of cliches. He needs no introduction. He's the world's greatest living Irish man, Peter O'Toole. Peter, this is very much home ground for you. May I uh, preface the uh, interrogation (laughs) with a couple of words? Um, A few weeks back, I I saw a cartoon in a newspaper which made me chuckle. It was a group of oldies, old men and women, protesting in a protest march. And the first oldie had a, a, a banner, a placard, and on it it said, what are we doing? <laughs> and the second one said, why are we here? <laughs> and the third one said, what will we say? <laughs> so I, I, I'm similarly afflicted in, in certain <laughs> respects. Uh, I've been trying to um, find a pattern to the, the uh, subtractions in my memory. And they are names and titles, as indeed they are for many of us. I'm afraid names and titles have gone. Uh, proper nouns, they've gone. Uh, uh, I mean, there's no rhyme or reason to them. They're not in alphabetical order, a dozen of them whizzing round the head, and they don't come to mind. They're not a category. So do forgive me. I shan't remember one name, and I shan't remember one title. John. Thank you, and good night. <laughs> Normally that would worry me, but I was fortunate enough to meet Peter last night, and uh, there's a lot to be said, and a, a huge amount to be said. And first of all, Peter, this, this, is, this is home ground for you. You're a Galway Well, I man. lived in West Galway for 20 years, and I've known it since I was a boy. And I've been coming and going for the better part of, what, three quarters of a century. So yes, yes, and I did love living here. Domestic circumstances changed, and I had to remove myself to London, but that's beside the point. We come regularly. My daughter lives here. She was reared here, Kate. Tell me a little about your dad, Peter. Dad was, my father was a racetrack bookie, uh, Captain Pat O'Toole. The only captaincy he ever had was of a minor soccer side, but bottom line. <laughs> um, he uh, he uh, earned a living in the northern racetracks of England. And uh, he met my mother, who was a Scots nurse with an Irish mum, when he was making a book at either Epsom or Ascot, I forget which. He'd gone down to the, to the big lands for a change. And then they moved up, and he worked all the, the northern circuits. And uh, I was born and reared up there. And um, then came the beginning of the Second World War. And uh, I was seriously ill as a child, so I was, in, I was um, in, uh, in hospital for nearly a couple of years. And when I came out, the, the war had begun, so any trips to Ireland had completely gone. So we completely severed the connection, Daddy and me, for, for, uh, for over six years. And then the moment the war had finished, we came across to Dublin, and we bought some eight-hour killed steak and some nylon stockings and uh, butter and uh, biro pens. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me a little bit about, about Yorkshire. I think we all have this notion about Yorkshire. Um, cloth caps, coal mines, very pretty villages with the countryside just backing onto them and, and a very civilised sort of a place. Get that feel about it. If there's any county in England that reflects Ireland, it is Yorkshire. It is a sporting nation. 
Uh, yes, it's got the image of the flat cap and the greyhound and the whippet, but don't believe any of that. It's a massive place, the broad acres of it. It's full of rugby players and soccer players and cricketers and hurling players. There are lots of Irish there. And greyhounds and horses and the betting and the gambling. All the major racetracks in England are all in the north of England. So it's very beautiful and it's full of crack. And um, it was a good place to, to be reared. And it was, there was an artistic community there and, oh, and well, theatre yeah. and so on. <laughs> For kind. But I mean, I, don't forget, I, was, I didn't come near the artistic world until I was in my late teens. No, I was a bookie's son. But you, you had a couple of possible jobs in that. You, you started out in journalism mm-hmm. and the Navy. Uh-huh. And both of them seem to have agreed with you pretty well. Yeah, well, I loved being in, the, in a newspaper. I really did. Um, it was a kind of education for me. It was an education. And uh, I worked for the, um, the, uh, the Conservative Newspapers Association, and they were, they were great, serious old journalists who admired their craft and knew their craft. And we were brought up on people like Stead and Montague and how facts were precious. And little, um, uh, anybody who was brought up in England during the war, there are great gaps in our education. Um, because all the young men and young women were in the forces, and we were taught by people who came out of retirement. I was at um, a, a Catholic school in St. Anne's Cathedral School in, in Leeds, which was opened by the Liberator in 1830, by Daniel O'Connell. It was the um, first Catholic cathedral to be allowed, to be allowed after the what, Catholic emancipation yeah. in whatever it was. And uh, it had a strong, strong Irish tradition. And, uh, no, I forgot what I'm talking about. <laughs> At what point, then? You, you touched on this already. You'd done some journalism, and that obviously was ex- oh, yes, the ex- exercising were, your The bits that were capacity. missing, they sent me to, um, the, to a college of commerce to fill it. I learned French and English and typing and things like that. And uh, then I was called up into the Navy for the Korean War. I didn't serve in Korea, happily. Um, but I did serve... Uh, I was with the third submarine flotilla for uh, 14 months, and then I was um, in fishery protection on the North Atlantic. Oddly enough, yesterday I was walking down the quays, and there was the EFA, the, the corvette, the Irish Navy corvette, and I wanted to have a look because I served on a corvette, and it was a beautiful ship. And uh, the boys invited me on board, but they were leaving at noon today. And this was the watch, the eight o'clock to twelve, the people who couldn't go ashore. So I thought, oh no, 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 no. If I go on board that ship, I shall never get off. Because <laughs> I was on the Mave once. Remember the Mave that existed? Yes. And we went looking for villains off the West Coast. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> and you enjoyed your time in the Navy, didn't you? you really I loved my it. time in the Navy, yes. Well, one of the reasons I think I loved it was because I knew it wasn't forever. And... Um, I was with, not with the National Service, not, I was with men who'd fought in the Atlantic, Battle of the Atlantic, Battle of the Pacific, uh, coastal defense, who'd been, done the Murmansk run, you know, the most, where, where people were chewing icy bubbles, uh, it was ghastly. And, uh, uh, and, and in the submarine service, uh, more than 50% are Irish, because you get danger money, and you know, who gives a damn? And, <laughs> And you get um, uh, what's called hard lays, which is there's nowhere to sleep. So you get money for that. So of course all the Irishmen wanted a few bob. Did you find it tough? I mean, it seems, it seems a long way from the place you ended up, Rada. You know, it seems to be tough men, you know, dangerous ports, tattoos, all of that. <laughs> You're giving me a cue for last night, aren't you? I am, yeah, I really <laughs> He said to me last night, we were ever tattooed. And I said, I woke up on a bed in Copenhagen. And he began to laugh. <laughs> um, I'd been taken by a load of sailors into a tattoo parlor and stuck on one of those things. And it was literally, I just woke up in time before the needle went in. And I, no, 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 no. Because poor Sean Connery, to this day, has Scotland forever. <laughs> and underneath that, mother. <laughs> well, James Bond. (laughs) 
So, Peter, can you recall the first impulse to be an actor then? Given that you had the journalism, you had the sailing behind you and all of that, why acting? What happened? Well, I began to get very interested in the theatre in about 19... when I joined the Navy and going all over the place. And, and uh, sailors are educated people. They love to read and they love to go to the cinema and they love to go to the theatre, which I found and was delighted by. And... Um, uh, we used to go to, um, for the first time, I used to go to the pictures since I was a child. I love the pictures. Um, but to start going to the Curzon Cinema, where they were showing you know, posh films, <laughs> I saw, we saw a group of us um, from, came up from Portsmouth when I was about 19, about 51 or 52, you'll know more better than I. Rashomon. It's a film that was made by... Um, oh, here. I was going to say kamikaze, no. no. Um, Kurosawa. Kurosawa, thank you. Uh, before he made Seven Samurai, and it was with Toshiro Mifune. There you go, I'm, I'm, I'm hot. <laughs> um, and, uh, <laughs> and I loved it. And I loved, um, I loved the way Mifune acted. And then I saw The Seven Samurai. And um, that intrigued me. And um, I began to go to the theatre a bit. And then when I came out of the Navy and I was back into the newspaper, I joined a, an amateur theatre group. And um, uh, I'd done a little bit, and a man came up to me called, uh, a Turk called Awad. I am doing superbly. <laughs> And um, he was putting on the production of, here we go, uh, doesn't matter, a Russian. Chekhov? Not Chekhov, doesn't matter. Turgenev? Uh, of, um, I can't, fa fa Fathers, Fathers and Sons. Sons. A version of Fathers and Sons. And um, the leading man had fallen down a flight of stairs and broken his leg. <laughs> and would I do it? For a week, well, I'd never done anything with her, and these were professionals. So I said, well, I could, I, what, what do I do? And um, he, he took me through it, and I, and I did it. And uh, who remembers Philip Stone? He was uh, Stanley Kubrick's favorite English actor. He was in all Stanley Kubrick's films. And Philip Stone watched it. And he came up to me and said, you can do it. I said, what? And it began from there. If I tell you the, 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 um, the, 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 uh, the way it went, you'd see him that was step by step had been planned and considered. None of it was planned or considered. All of it was a complete blunder and an accident. <laughs> but after about a year, I finished up at the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art. And that began it. There were a bunch of very impressive people there at the same time as you. Uh, Harris, um, Peter Finch, uh, Finchie wasn't there, he, but he was around. There was yeah. Albert Finney, there was Alan Finney. Bates, there was Brian Pringle. Did you realise when you're in that company, those people, that you know you were a hot bunch of people, or were you just another crowd of students who didn't we quite realise? We were just none of us knew what we were doing. It's just we we, we we weren't certain if we could or could or should. As it happened, Albert could do it. Finney, he did it. For Alan Bates, we were an exception. We didn't know we were, but we were. And um, uh, I began to get a little more at ease, a bit more confident. Uh, I, I ended the first year, and I was still in one piece, which was remarkable, because we didn't... I mean, you can imagine what we were like. And uh, I mean, I'd been in the Navy. <laughs> uh, and quite a number of people had been forces. And uh, um, there was a tour going from the, from the Rada to all the parks in London at the end of the summer. And he was casting it. And I went up to see him, and he said that there's a, a thing, Dr. Fortune, call him in this play. And I looked at it, and it was only a couple of lines. And I said, well, it's only a small part. And... He's not a very tall man, but he seemed to grow about five feet. And he looked at me and said, there are no small parts, only small actors. And chilled me to the bone. 
And I went off and I worked with a load of paddies on a, on a building site. I was the cement man with the stuff. <laughs> and, um, and earned a few bob and came back and I did the tour with Hugh Miller and he sort of adopted me. And he made me take it very seriously and we did plays together and he taught me various things, how to study, how to get on with it. You were developing, obviously, an approach to the work and the acting, which I'd like to get into in a bit more detail in a few moments. But then suddenly along came this thing in 1962, Lawrence of Arabia, which surely must have sort of thrown your head in all sorts of directions. This was a completely new experience on every kind of level for you. Well, um, do understand that I'd, I'd done five years in repertory um, from 1955 to 1960. So I was well versed in the business and if you're in repertory and you put a play on every three weeks, you put on 12 plays a year. Um, and uh, this is the days when, you know, the place was run by professional actors and uh, we did things our way and we, and we ran the business. Um, a, a new play every three weeks which is a tremendous demand on, on, the, on the performance but it's possible. And indeed, it became a luxury because there were over 80 theatres then in England, Ireland, and Scotland, none in Wales, who, um, who had repertory. So there were plenty of jobs if you could get, if you were, you could even pay to be in a, a repertory company. You could be a wanted gentleman beginner improver <laughs> in Pitlochry. And you'd give him a fiver and you could play. <laughs> And you needed a dinner jacket and a, a, a tweed suit and a whatever, and then if you bring your own clothes. Thousands of jobs. Not one of us who left the RADA didn't have a job in one of these little repertory theatres. And the posh ones did three weeks. The um, unposh ones did two plays a week. What were called split weeks. Nobody had full scripts. They only had what were called part scripts your part only, so you didn't know what play you were in, you just waited, <laughs> you waited for your cue, and if it was your turn, you went on. We were taught, Hugh Miller taught me a, 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 an extraordinary lesson about what it is to be a professional actor. It's the same to be a professional anything, pianist, rugby player, whatever. It is a, a group of uh, players, and the old man is missing somebody else, so they, they bring in an old actor who hasn't worked for years and years and years, to take over at the last minute. And then comes mighty old 80-year-old, walks into the dressing room and goes to the pipes, and does that under the pipes and gives a bit of dirt on his finger and goes into the mirror and puts it round his eyes and, and rubs his hands and says, right, where's the stage and what's the play? <laughs> <laughs> You, you've mentioned there about... So when things like <laughs> Lawrence of Arabia came along, first of all, I didn't believe it. I was playing Shylock at Stratford-on-Avon, and I got a phone call from uh, David Lean. And uh, would, would I ever be in London? Well, I was only in two or three plays a, a week. So I said, yeah, I'll be in. And um, I went down, and uh, he... Uh, he, he, he he looked, and I had whiskers, because I, I don't like sticking glue things on. And I had uh, long hair and Shylock whiskers. And uh, David said to me, what on earth do you look like underneath all that? <laughs> so um, uh, I said, what, 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 why do you want to know? He said, well, um, I'm trying to cast uh, Lawrence of Arabia. I said, really? Um, he said, yes. He said, and um, in those days, David Lean was um, married to an Indian woman called Leela Lean, who had a brother. David was, uh, David Lean, I'm talking of. David was, uh, became very interested in Indian culture around about the end of the 50s and indeed married into, into, the, um, into the country and uh, was, was being instructed in various things by this man who was a brother of, of, his, of his wife. And um, this guy had gone to see a, a little black and white film called The Day They Robbed the Bank of England, in which I played a young 
English army officer, which of course is what T. Lawrence was. And the uh, Indian had gone to David afterwards and said, I've just seen the man who's going to play Lawrence of Arabia. So David went to see um, the day they robbed the Bank of England. I'm doing very well. And, uh, <laughs> and, um, and I shaved off my whiskers and did a film test and uh, the rest we know about. And uh, we, uh, it, it was an adventure. Above all, um, uh, you're talking about the afterwards, not the during, and it took two years to make. And it was only supposed to take, what, five months Five or months, yeah. And I, so the adventure side of it, quite apart from the work, it must have been great just to be in those places. Oh, unbelievable. Come on, I was 28 years of age, full of it. And there we were in the Holy Land, and... Uh, with the Royal Road from Aqaba all the way to Iraq, where everything in history, well, look, read it, open the Bible and read that, and open today's newspaper and read that, and it's the same thing, it's all going on, has been going on for millennia. And um, to be where the Crusaders were, to be where the Pilgrims were, to be, eh, astonishing. And to be in the middle of the Arabian Desert, right in the damned middle of it. And, uh, 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 we would leave, we, Aqaba was, our, was where we went for a, a lie down, if you can imagine such a thing. And uh, uh, it, it's on this coast, so we'd get into, into the water up to there. It'd be gorgeous, the first time we'd been cool. And uh, then we'd, we'd rest up for a couple of days in tents. And then we had a Dakota and a de Havilland Dove, two aeroplanes. And we'd take off. It'd all be wrecked in advance by David, had wrecked a couple of years earlier with Johnny Box. And we'd land on a mud flat, pitch tents. The Dakota would bring the crew and the generator and the lights and the camera. We'd set up and we'd shoot till we were exhausted. Then everything back on the thing and fly back to Aqaba and try and recover. And we did that for. Um, I was out there for nine months, but we shot for five. But the first, first uh, three months, I spent um, learning to ride that wretched camel. I mean, <laughs> I mean, you're nine feet up in the air on the hump. This great big brute and they're on a wooden saddle. Wooden. <laughs> and there's a big nail in the front, that's to get you in the chest button. <laughs> Another one in the back, that's to get you in the spine. <laughs> the idea is if you don't touch them, you're riding properly. Well, you know. You... <laughs> and, um, uh, and they go, and they think they're, they think they're gazelles. Because they, they do this awful plod, but when they want to go quickly, they start doing this. <laughs> and you're on the top, being, ah, <laughs> But things, I mean, wonderful things happen. I'm, I am staying more or less to the point. It's about Lawrence of Arabia. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, the, the, in the film, there is a man called Auda Abu Tai who's played magnificently by uh, Anthony Quinn. And uh, the real Aldo Abu Tai did exist, of course, and his grandson, Kutaifan Abu Tai, taught me to ride. And he looked like the old man, hawky. And I was with, the, we, we, I, I'm jumping ahead. I, the reason I was out there three months earlier was to be among the Bedouin. To learn, to learn to ride the camel, to learn to wear the clothes, to learn all sorts of things. And to get to know these men who were never on the film except once, but always round and looking, and looking after me, looking after everybody. They were King Hussein's own desert patrol, magnificent men. And of course, King Hussein was a marvellous man. And they adored Hussein, and he adored them. 
and none of you are bowing and scraping for them. They say, hello, baby, how are you? And put their arms around him. And I tell you, you've got an Egyptian missus, God help you. And they were great. And um, uh, I went to see the film about 15 years back, and I sat on the front row. Hadn't seen it forever. And um, there's a scene when T. Lawrence is learning to ride the camel, and he falls off. And uh, the Bedouin says to him, but tomorrow, good riding. And it cuts to the first real shot of the desert. This huge panorama, this multicolored, very colored uh, shot. And in the middle, these two little figures galloping. Well, that's me and Katyphon, Abu Tai, the real thing, the two of us, galloping. And uh, I'd forgotten. And Katyphon was killed in 1965. He was charging against the Israelis on the, on the camel with a, a Lee-Enfield rifle. I mean, they are fearless. And um, uh, I'd forgotten it completely. And there we were, and I'm afraid tears just shot horizontally out of my eyes. So the adventure continued and continued and continued and continued. Then when we'd finished doing all the desert work, or we thought we finished doing all the desert work, we went to Seville, which has a, a Moorish connection. So we could shoot Cairo and all the in, interiors, which we shot in Seville, which meant that on Monday I was with Alec Guinness, on Tuesday I was with Claude Rains, on Wednesday I was with Jose Ferrer, then I was with Anthony Quayle, then Alec Guinness, then Arthur Kennedy, and where do you, where do you go? I mean, the greatest actors in the world. And I had the opportunity to play good scenes with them. Did you know at the time, and did Lean know at the time, that you were making one hell of a film? Yeah. We yeah. all knew. Sounds arrogant and stupid, but we all knew. And was it, was it just the quality of the, of the people that were around you and the work? Or was the quality of the people around us. We just knew we had a smell to it. Anybody knows, it's a kind of intuition that comes into the pores. And uh, when I, you, you see, it, we were still shooting a month before the film opened. A month before? Yeah, Dave, the, the last scene that we shot was the opening scene of the picture on the motorbike. And, because um, we were back in England, and we were opening at Christmas, and this was late November. And we shot it in Oxfordshire, and this is the only time I was nearly killed. Um, I, we're doing the, the motorbike stuff, and to do close-ups, we had rigged up a wooden thing on wheels at the, on the back of a camera car, with me holding a, a couple of uh, lumps of wood and pretending it was a motorbike. <laughs> and um, the cable between the, uh, the, 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 the truck and the cat snapped. And I was left, and I went happily, head first, into a ditch. And we were okay. And I thought, David, you're going to have me in that bloody tomb in St. Paul's. <laughs> he wanted me in the tomb, I think, so he could bring yet more authenticity to it. <laughs> Tell me a little, Peter, about how you approach a part. Uh, first of all, accepting a part in the first place, deciding I want to do this. And then when you get a script. Now, it may be different, I know, for stage and for television and for the movies, but what do you do with the script? How long does it take you to, to study that script? How much time do you spend on it? How, what's, what's your process? Which of the 36 questions would you like to <laughs> <laughs> Right. Okay. Let's, well, let's, let's take it in three First parts. First of all, then. there is no difference to me uh, on theatre or cinema or television. Not of kind. There's a difference of degree. I don't, uh, when I'm on a film stage, have to project to a thousand people. I don't. When I'm uh, in a theater, I don't have to pretend I'm not, it, it, degree. Um, in terms of choice, everything is the playwright. There are three indispensables in the theater. Author, actor, Audience. No audience, no art. That was Henry Irving's motto. And there's nothing ever truer. We are three, we're indivisible. Audience, actor, 
author. We're indivisible. We're a, we're a, we're a trinity. And the great magic and mystery of a playhouse is this connection between the author to the actor to the audience back the, the neural connection of brains and listen to you all now you're silent and listening this is remarkable this is a civilized experience I mean <laughs> to get a thousand people another thing I loathe about the present day is this presumption come on we've if you expect people to come from, from, from Lettermore to Galway, give them a show. Above all, give them a show. And we're there for them. They're not there for us. We're there for them. But, my job is to entertain you. That's my job when I'm an actor. And by entertainment, that can mean anything from entertain, conjecture for a while. It's a big word. People love Lear. I love Lear. You can be entertained by Lear. I can be entertained by, oh, Jimmy O'D. <laughs> How would you define an actor's job? It sounds like a stupid question, but I'd love to hear your answer to it. What, is an actor, what does an actor do? Make words to? flesh. Make words flesh. And did you... To come to understand that at a certain point, or did you always know that? No, I never knew that. I knew it only slowly, slowly, slowly. The one thing that Hugh Miller drummed into me, and in fact anybody and anybody who's ever played a saxophone or played a game of hurling or rugby knows that if you want to excel, you work, you drudge, you slog. The most important thing for any actor is unobserved, uninhibited private study without an interlocutor. And what do I mean by study? I mean that you, first of all, you read the play and read the play over, this is the fun bit. This is the fun bit. You read the play over and over and over again till you know what the play is about. You get a kind of picture or a, a sense, because every play has its own style. Every play, any decent play. And then, you absorb it. You, you narrow it down to your part. Now, everybody in this room, practically, I'm sure, I mean, in this theatre, has, has, uh, has learnt a poem or a prayer or something. Well, there's only one way to do it, and that's over and over and over again. So you study and study and study. You tease out meaning, and you tease out sense from each line. And while you're teasing out meaning and sense and rhythm, because there's a musicality to, to, to Shaw, to Shakespeare, to O'Casey, to, there's a great musicality to the words. As exactly as a musician would pray over and over and over and over and over again, to get one note particularly right, to get one grace note right, over and over and over again, till you're completely, there's absolutely nothing between your, your tummy and your mouth. It just comes out. From the belly to the mouth, immediately. Um, and it's, it's, that's it. Um, and if you read any of the biographies of any of the great actors of the past, Edmund Keane, whose wife loathed him, but she um, uh, said uh, grudgingly that he worked harder than any man she'd ever known, studying. Henry Irving would lock himself in a room. Alec Guinness used to lock himself in a room and he had different colored pencils. And he would underline, whatever the colors meant, I have no idea, but he did. He underlined certain passages. Rafe Richardson, wonderful eccentric. Ralph Richardson, a really wonderful eccentric. He would practice uh, standing up in a garage with his play on a musical, what do you call them? And a violin and hot gin. <laughs> and he'd be in there for three or four weeks until he had it. <laughs> Valentine Dial, who I knew, he, he used to say, well, when he was studying, he would say, is this a white wine part or is it a red wine part? Because <laughs> it's a few times you can afford to have a drop. And it's a lovely feeling once you've got it completely 
in and you're on top of it, that then you can have a jar. And it's not, it's not a question in any sense of remembering lines then. It's, it's no, in you. No, 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 no. I think that's what people find hard to understand. They assume that you're up there all the time and thinking, how can he possibly remember all these words? But you're not remembering them. No, no, no. no. They're remembered. They're done. They're in there. Let me ask you about Venus. It's an extraordinary movie, I think. And uh, in particular, a part like that. Actors often talk about, you know, when they're in a movie or a play, it has a tremendous effect on their, on their own self. Now, you're in a film about a man who's falling apart, who's dying, uh, whose obituary is read in the film. Um, could, you, could you sort of dissociate yourself from the person in the film while you were watching that? That can't be easy. There is absolutely no connection between what I do on a stage and what I do off a stage. If I'm, if I'm playing a hangman, you don't have to worry. <laughs> no, I'll, I'll leave that to the amateurs. I, I, I know nothing about that. I really don't. No, no, no. Does that really drive you, drive you nuts? Because you do hear actors going on about these sorts of things all the time. You know, they, they, I just said, go away and learn your fucking life. <laughs> <laughs> Let me ask you about, I think one of the most moving things in that particular movie is Jodie Whittaker. The, oh, she's the a lovely girl. girl. Now, I'm curious what it must be like, and you were in the same boat, everybody's in the same position at some point. You're the new kid on the block and you're in with the big guys. That must have been very, very tough for her, I would imagine, to share she the screen with you guys. Into it. She took over the set. She's a very confident little girl, wealthy, well-educated little girl, confident, full of fire, didn't know who anybody was or what anybody was, but... Oh, what's he doing now? What's that for? Great fun. She was lovely fun, and she's a good, fine little actress. I'd say you're proud of that movie, are you, Venus? Uh, uh, to a point. And what, what's, what's, what are you resisting there? What, what the, to what point? Um, uh, uh, well, I, I say this about practically everything. Uh, I, I'm not... Um, uh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Well, let me ask you, and I mentioned Jody there, but some of the people you have worked with, and let me just fire a few names at you, and, 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 and I'd be curious to see what comes to mind. Audrey Hepburn. Ah, very sad. Sad woman. She was, she was unhappy. Her, her life, her domestic life, wasn't very good, and um, uh, she was giving up the business. In fact, we did a play, uh, the last but one film that she did, she wanted to give it up. She'd had enough. And um, she was a most unhappy woman. Uh, so we, we made it a point. Eli Wallach was a fine old American pro, and me and, uh, and uh, Hugh Griffith and, and Charlie Boy. We made a point, let's cheer Audrey up. And by, the, uh, and we had, uh, by, by about the third or fourth day, we had her in stitches. In fact, um, <laughs> I'll tell you a story about Audrey, if I may. We were shooting at night, and she didn't eat. She was always kept this figure, face. And it was cold, it was on the banks of the Seine. And the, the, um, the cameraman came up to me and Willie Wyler, the then director, and he said, um, orgies turn blue. <laughs> ah, so I took her into the caravan, and I gave her a Brandy and soda. Yeah, stick that down your own. Well, the blossoms came to her cheeks and the sparkle in her eye, and she came tripping. We had to go into a car and drive off. I was sitting in the car. She came tripping down the flight of stairs, jumped into the car, switched on the English, and we shot. <laughs> and we hit one of those huge brutes, you know, those lamps. And I told her the story of Edmund Keane, who went on stage a bit drunk one 
day. And uh, the audience said, you're boo, you're drunk. And Edmund King said, if you think I'm drunk, wait till you see the Duke of Buckingham. <laughs> And the Duke of Buckingham was hanging onto a flat. <laughs> and uh, Audrey gave me a present at the end of uh, Milton, Milton's Paradise Thingy-Bob. And, um, and uh, she signed it, the Duke of Buckingham. <laughs> Another couple of names, Richard Burton. Good friend. Great inspiration to me. Outrageous man. Seamus, he used to call me Seamus. <laughs> She's ruined me. <laughs> Sophia Loren. Ah. Uh -huh. Have mercy. I tell you, once I was, I was with Sophia at her sister's house one day, and I was sitting there with two children on my knee, and they were Mussolini's grandchildren. <laughs> yeah, she married Mussolini, her, her sister married Mussolini's son. I had Mussolini's two grandchildren. <laughs> You're getting no more. <laughs> Here's a subject, and I'm I'm, I only want to bring this up uh, in relation to the work itself. You may not know this, but you had a reputation uh, for a, a lifestyle and, and, and for enjoying a drink. And the reason I ask, I, I, I wonder, did it ever get in the way of your professional approach to the work? You're a very professional man. And I know I couldn't do what you did and turn up for work the next day, so how? How did that work? I've been drunk on stage twice. I've never been drunk in a film. Never. Oh, yes, I have once. <laughs> I had to be a drunk. <laughs> I had to get up from a table and go through a door in, in, um, in a, a, a film called... Oh, I can't remember. I was playing a German general, and um, uh, we filmed all night, and I had to get up, and I had a few drops, and I had to literally walk from, say nothing, from a table to a door. Once on stage, I, I, would, I, was, I had a soft voice, and Marie Keane gave me a brandy and port. She had gargled with that. Well, I did. And uh, I forgot to spit it out. And, uh, <laughs> and I'm afraid by the fifth act, I was not all that uh, uh, clever. Um, and then once, uh, uh, and uh, the first time was a play called The Long and the Short and the Tall, and Ronald Fraser, God rest his soul, and me, we were, we'd been to a party given by Gary Cooper at the Savoy Hotel in, 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 in London, a lunch party, and uh, Ron said, uh, Pedro, it's, oh, blimey. And we left to get to the theatre, and we hit, and we realised we were both drunk. What do you do? And um, uh, coffee and all that—it doesn't do any harm. It doesn't do anything at all. But you drink. And we found that we were—I was doing not drunk acting. Is well, I could see that you—you uh, you make sure that you are completely articulated. Yeah. <laughs> And of course, he gets. We put 20 minutes on the first act. <laughs> was it as bad as people make out? The, the, the drinking, climbing buildings, all that sort of stuff? That wasn't fun. That was fun. I enjoyed climbing buildings. We used to do. We used to, we called buildering. We, a friend of mine called Oliver Patrick and I, we'd seen photographs of, of university students climbing. Steeples, and they called it buildering. So we used to go buildering. If it was a steeple, we'd climb it. There was um, a, a place on Ilkley Moor called the Cow and the Calf, two, two stones in which people go up with those funny hats and cleats and boots and whatever. We used to go up in our Sunday suits. 
Yeah, I like climbing. <laughs> but but, but while, while very drunk? Particularly while very drunk. <laughs> you had a lot of fun when you were drinking, clearly. It was, it was fuel for your social life. I mean, you, you course, was, this was going to rugby matches and so on. There, were, there would be nights when one just, one just get ruined, but the um, other nights, it was literally a few we go, where are we going now? We're going off to Punchestown. Where are we going? We go off to Paris. Fun, yes, it was a fuel, kept going. Do, do you miss that? I don't miss it, I still have it. <laughs> The climbing's a bit slow, I think. It's a fantastic cathedral here, you know. You should have a go later. Yeah. Um, in the time left to us, last night, and, and I noticed that when we were talking, it was about rugby, it was about cricket, it was about football, it was about boxing. You know, those, those are your passions. Mm. And I, I suppose I'm wondering, as, as one gets older, D does your passion for your job get any less? Not at all. None at all. My passion as a spectator, the sport, I used to play every sport that was going when I was a boy. Um, uh, as a spectator, I'll go anywhere. I've, I've great fun I had, I went down to Cardiff to see Munster beat um, whoever they beat for the Heineken Cup for the, for the second time. That was wonderful. And uh, to see that stadium, this vast stadium. And I'm not a Munster man, I'm a Connaught man, but um, uh, Harris was a, a Munster man. And he never saw them win a, 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 a European Cup. He saw them get to the semi-final. He wasn't allowed on Tuman Park, you know, Harris. <laughs> he wasn't allowed in. <laughs> we, were in we were in Twickenham together. We went into a gents' lavatory. And uh, Munster were playing somebody in the Heineken Cup. And uh, a man turned around from the stall and saw Harris and said, Ah, Jesus, he said, you're a jinx. <laughs> he wasn't let into Tuman, but he had to stand in the car, in the car park with the radio on. <laughs> so poor old Harris had to die before Munster could win. <laughs> But he sacrificed himself for a good cause. They, <laughs> they won the European Cup twice. And the appetite for the work, still there? Oh, yeah, yes. I don't do stage anymore. I, mean, it's, 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 I had a lot of fun doing Geoffrey Berlin has done well. I had a lot of fun doing that. And um, I realised that never again would I get another... A modern play, a brand new play by Keith Waterhouse, excellent playwright and novelist, with a part that required a lot of speaking and moving and dancing and jumping around. Never again will I have such a part in a modern play. At the old Vic, where it all began for me in 1953, and I realized that uh, it's the time to say bye-bye. And, um, oh, right, listen, if I get skinned tomorrow, I shall pack my props and go off and earn a few shillings, but um, not, not unless I have to. And in terms of the movies, I'd I say love to a movie, I love to do a television, as long as the part is decent. And how do you gauge that? What's, what's your criteria? Intuitive and subjective. Um, uh, happily, with all my years in repertory, where we did classical plays, so we did plays that were, were successful, so we knew they were good. It's also a help. When you do a new play, it could be by anybody. You never know if it's going to work or not. You think it's going to be fun, and after about three or four nights, it suddenly starts turning from flesh into ashes, and it's a very strange feeling when a play doesn't work. And some plays just don't, and some plays do. I'm told the hardest thing in the world to write is a play. Um, it's certainly difficult to find a decent one, a new one. But I'd done these years and years and years of quality work, and so I, I think I could recognize at least the impact of quality. I'd be very lucky. I mean, uh, I've done scripts by Terence Rattigan, I've done scripts by uh, Freddie Forsyth, by Robert Bolt. I, I've been very, very lucky indeed. There's one anecdote which you've told many times, and. I don't care whether it's true or not, because it's, it's, it's extraordinary. Yourself and Finch in Dublin, and the barman wants to uh, kick you Well, around. it wasn't Dublin, it was outside. It was on the way back to Bray, and it was a little hole in the wall. Little, tiny, little hole in the wall, you know, with the... This is the long time ago, with the bottles of Guinness and the fly paper and the, the washing powder and everything. And um, 
we went in and uh, the man said, now, now you boys, you've had enough. Out, you've had enough, go home, go home. So we bought the pub. And woke up in Finch's place the following morning. Finch, you know we did last night, mate. I said, "What? Well, we bought the fucking pub." <laughs> so immediately onto bank, which I can. We went down to the block, and he hadn't taken the checks in. He hadn't. Now you boys are very foolish with your money too. <laughs> and it was great, and it became our place. And executives from Columbia Pictures would fly over from Hollywood and we'd take them to the hole in the wall. <laughs> the exclusive bar, yeah. <laughs> Kim Novak I took there once. Peter, this, this is a, it's always a corny question, but I always ask it of, of people who are uh, over 50, let's say. There are a lot of people here who, who are interested in, in the business in various uh, capacities, uh, starting out, people who are well into it and so on. Is there advice that you would offer to people? I'm afraid I'm not much of a one for advice. I was never very good at accepting it, and I'm not certainly not very good at <laughs> dishing it out. Um, I know only this, this is all I know, is that those indifferent gods, they care one thing about us and that's sweat. Peter O'Toole, thank you very much. Not Thanks to Peter O'Toole, Miriam Allen, and all here at the Galway Film Flat on sign with Adrian Cunningham. Research was by Claudia Lynham and the producer was Kevin Harris. That programme was recorded at the Town Hall Theatre Galway on the 12th of July 2008 and was broadcast tonight in tribute to the late Peter O'Toole. Er yesterday, Gorev a Alam Dealish. Drama on One. Sundays at 8pm. rta.ie forward slash drama on one. Drama on One.